Hey, do you enjoy Geeks of Grimdark? Do you wish we produced more Warhammer content? Well, check out our ongoing series with this week's sponsor, Shooting the Shit with Chippa. Axel and I have a reoccurring series with host Chris Shipman, where we introduce him to 40k factions, one at a time. And once you're all caught up with that, check out all the rest of his amazing interviews on your favorite podcasting site today. Welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this, the darkest timeline. I'm Lord Commander Ulrich, and with me as always is... His shield brother, Axel Wright. And I'm currently without my microphone because of just some stuff. So if I sound less high quality, I apologize, listeners. You know, we just could have blamed it on their setup, not ours, and kind of gotten away with it. But you're, uh, you're a good dude, so... I'm transparent. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going? It is okay. I've got... My dinner sitting next to me get, getting cold, but I'll I'll live. So, <laughs> how are you? Uh, I'm in a pretty good mood. And at the top of our episode, we thank them for their ongoing support. And they are Pam Galley, Marquis, Chris Chipman, River Galley, Krug, Arthur Crane, Kevin Vay, Brendan Angu, John Vittles, Kit, Kenny, Seth Decker, Jesse Johnson, Don Lucy, and Nathan Willis. Now, if you'd like to become a patron and join that illustrious legion, just head over to patreon.com forward slash geeks with shields. 25 cents an episode means a dollar a month means we can afford to produce this as a weekly podcast. You guys have no idea how much that little bit. And as it's, you know, I actually don't know how often we do regular episodes now, considering we do like echo logs and book clubs and geeks of grimdark and stuff like that. So it's hard for me to remember some things. But today we have... A guest, one a uh, uh, frequent guest of the podcast, Woonvog. Hello. And since Woonvog is here, you know we're talking about something animated. Yeah, not to typecast him, but we only get him on every once in a while, and he really is our best one to talk animation with. So this is a sort of follow-up to an episode we did in the past where we talked about the state of adult animation in the West, and we kind of spent a lot of time ragging on it and saying it's not good, it's very juvenile, it's very boring, they're not taking any risks. So I thought, what if we did the opposite? What if we sat down like, hey, here's a handful of really good ones that really are doing smart, fun things with animation for adults? And to be clear, what we're talking about is we're not talking about animation necessarily that adults can enjoy, things like Regular Show and and Steven Universe and Gravity Falls. We're talking specifically about animation that is aimed at adults because those are like two completely different conversations because don't get me wrong. I, I love Gravity Falls and Steven Universe and Regular Show, but they fit a different conversation entirely than things like Rick and Morty or BoJack Horseman. So. Should we start with BoJack Horseman then? Because I hadn't thought about it. BoJack Horseman's a great example of this. I mean, yeah, BoJack Horseman's one of my favorite and anim- one of my favorite shows. Period to come out in the last ten years. Uh, Woonvog, did you finish BoJack? I did not. Um, it's not that I disliked the show because from everything I saw, it's so good. But uh, just didn't keep up with it. And again, it is a very heavy show. Yep, I was gonna say it's it's not easy to binge. Having done that, I well, kind of regret it. Yeah, I mean the funny thing is, and anyone listening to this who knows the show probably already knows this, yeah. uh, uh, especially if you've watched it. But the show had a thing where the first six episodes of it are basically, well, basically Family Guy with animals, and then things shift and it becomes closer to something like the best episodes of Futurama, where mm-hmm. Bojack starts dealing with serious issues. Literally, the the shift episode has to do with uh, Bojack's old friend who he betrayed in Hollywood, dying of cancer. And, you know, he goes to see him. And in any other sitcom or whatever like that, they would make up at the end, essentially. But Bojack's not like that. And he gets straight up told, no, I'm not going to let you get away with stabbing me in the back and feel better about yourself. I don't forgive you. (laughs) So... Yeah, no, if you really want our full in-depth thoughts, we do have a full episode talking about BoJack. So we're just going to kind of hit the highlights and answer the big question of, does this benefit from being animated? Because a lot of people go, it's just drama TV, but everyone's an animal. And I disagree because this one has a lot of fun with visual humor that you're not going to get otherwise. Absolutely. Well, the um, I can't remember the 
the woman's name, but the main uh, art director for BoJack is apparently mm-hmm. like the main force behind those visual puns. And the fact that it's a world of animals, like yes, the main story usually doesn't have anything to do with them being animals, and the main narrative could easily be done in normal drama or like normal live action but part of the fun of bojack is that it not just does all the dark serious stuff but also is filled with ridiculous gags a lot of them visual gags that have to do with them being animals yeah, like my personal favorite being neil the navy seal uh, neil actual navy seal that's right that's a great joke i love that it's both visual and funny also there's something disarming about the bright color palette of this show and them all being animals juxtaposed with the depression, the alcohol abuse, all of the really unpleasant dark stuff. Juxtaposed? Yes. Lost you, Ulrich. Well, how much? Where'd you lose right. me? The word juxtaposed. Oh, I was gonna say the bright color juxtaposed with all of the really dark, heavy unpleasantness that is the show. Yes. There, there's a fun. They they play a lot with surrealness. Uh, it gets and, right up on that line. Oh yeah, but the whole setup of they're they're sentient members of society, but they are all still considered animals, and that's depicted probably best and worst in the episode when they talk about chicken. Oh uh, yeah, Becca, <laughs> and how there are some chicken that are people and some chicken that are food. Yes, <laughs> no one knows chickens like chickens. And that's the kind of episode that you literally couldn't do in without, like, animation. I mean, you could, but it would be a very different thing, I think. But the idea of, like, the surrealism, that's why I think that was taken to a lot the, – the, a better ex- – don't get me wrong. I like BoJack. It's probably, like I said, it's one of my favorite shows. And I like it more than Tuca and Birdie. But Tuca and Birdie, which has that same art director – it's like she was let loose from whatever shackles did hold her in mm-hmm. in Ozak. And Tuca and Birdie takes the the concept to this like crazy extreme of surrealist metaphor and like everything visually. I, I don't know. Tuca and Birdie, I love, but it also makes my head hurt sometimes. Yep. No, Tuca and Birdie takes what I like to call the man-seeking woman approach to surrealism, and it uses its surrealness to express complex or weird ideas. For anyone who hasn't seen Man Seeking Woman, because it actually was a pretty niche show, and I only watched the first season of it, the basic idea of Man Seeking Woman is that it's a normal world, but everything that is done as metaphor is done literally. So, like, literally, the first episode is about the idea of I'm going on a blind, I'm going on a blind date. Oh, they set me up with a troll. It's literally a troll, like digging out of the garbage, the green skin, raggedy troll. <laughs> so, <laughs> Like whatever I love you might that show so much. Whatever you might say, things like, "Oh, it's raining cats and dogs," and then it will literally rain cats and dogs. So, anyway, that's just my man-seeking woman. Anyway, I see Hoonvog uh, has brought up a show that I have not watched, but he has been telling me about that. I'm sure he wants to talk about. So, yeah, I'm uh, kind of doing a list of things, and I said it off uh, off recording too. But be careful about looking up adult animation on Google when you're uh, setting up for things. <laughs> But uh, one show that I've watched a little bit of, speaking of surreal, is uh, Netflix's Midnight Gospel. I thought that fell more into like the the Star vs. the Forces of Evil category. Is that really qualified for this conversation? Oh, absolutely. This is like it is done, or the animation is done by Pendleton Ward. Okay. So you know, off of the uh, isn't off to the list of uh, Adventure Time. However, the show is based off of. The earlier podcasts from the Duncan Trussell Family Hour. Uh, now, what it is, is it takes conversations that uh, Trussell had with his guests, really serious, deep, heavy conversations, and Ward has animated them to these very interesting, surreal setups. Uh, uh, the premise of the show, at the very least, is the main character basically travels to alternate realities to have conversations with people in them. Uh, but the conversations are like about how uh, uh, how problematic opioids become, mm. uh, the concept of love itself, how society changes based on different perspectives, 
and I haven't got to it yet, but I know the final episode is based on the podcast that is the last conversation Trussell had with his mother before she passed away. Oh, boy. And, like, the... The animation is worth seeing just for the bizarreness of it. Did, did Pendleton Ward also do Over the Garden Wall? He did not, but I think a good chunk of his team worked with it, too. Okay, okay. But uh, with the first episode, or one of the first episodes at least, it is uh, the main character is, goes, or is uh, Clancy, uh, is talking to the president of this uh, alternate reality, again, about uh, drugs and their place in the world, but the animation is set to a zombie apocalypse occurring. Huh. Hmm. So it was funny. Woodfuck has tried to explain this show to me like two previous times, and I can never internalize it. I feel like I really need to see it before I can understand what this is, but it sounds experimental as hell in the best possible way. Experimental's a good way to put it, just because it is, it's so bizarre, but the conversations are really deep and impactful and it's usually just set to like just mind-bending animation you watched any of it Ulrich? i have not i haven't even heard of this i'm gonna have to check it out now what's funny is i remember a long time ago Ulrich, uh me and i were having a conversation where he basically said that he's not a fan of surrealism at all but i feel like that was years ago and i've watched Ulrich kind of well, i've discovered i'm i'm st- I'm not a fan of surrealism still largely, except, and it was watching, go back to Man Seeking Woman, if the surrealism has a purpose and it is being used to convey complex ideas in a visual medium or manner, I'm all for it. If it's surrealism for the sake of surrealism, I don't really like it because it's like you're being weird to be weird and it's unpleasant and annoying. Which is fair, and it's funny because I feel like uh, I don't know Midnight Gospel. I can't speak to it, but it sounds like it's probably doing that, serving a very specific purpose. I know that um, Tuca and Birdie was definitely riding that line, where I feel like half the you know a lot of things are metaphor, but also a lot of things were just what can that that art director get away with? Yes. And, and I know that Lance like of boobs comes to mind. That that is correct. <laughs> but I know like one example uh, was with we talk about how regular show is for actually aimed at children and just enjoyable adults. But J.G. Quintel, who did a regular show, also did a show called Close Enough. I was hoping is, you'd bring this up. I've been wanting to talk about this on the podcast forever. And Close Enough is just a regular show, but with no chains attached to it. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it drops I love the show. DC adult metaphors and just goes adult. Which is funny because I really thought DC, which is funny because I really thought Ulrich wouldn't actually like uh, Close Enough. So I was really glad to be proven wrong when he messaged me like a couple days later, like, this show is amazing. <laughs> no, I was really on the fence. I saw the trailer. I'm like, oh, that, 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 that's, that's kind of cool. I, I don't like regular show. But Slagathor and I binged it in like a weekend <laughs> because we are parents in our 30s. It's like, oh, this was written by somebody that's in our situation. This is something we've experienced. This is something we know. I have more issues with season two because they really kind of felt like they broadened out into everybody else. I'm like, I'm not as interested in everybody else. But I man. haven't seen season two, admittedly. But but I bring up close enough. And just like with regular show, J.J. Quintel, I think, rides a line. Or not even rides a line. He, he hop skips the line. Sometimes he's surrealist just because. And sometimes he's surrealist for a very specific purpose. It just depends on his fancy, I guess. No, I would argue the surrealism there is perfectly used. One of my favorite ones being the time-traveling fedora and kind of, you know, metaphoring being a parent and trying to juggle everything, but also feeling guilty about not having time for your kids, but recognizing the necessity of needing to be there for your kids and the cost it takes on you with a talking snail. All right, talking snail. I yeah, that's I don't definitely don't remember that. <laughs> you don't remember I, that one? Uh, that's like I a do whole, remember that one. And it's just weird. It's like yes, it's all about you know being a parent, being adult is difficult to balance everything. That's normal. But there's a talking snail that gives her a magic fedora. It's like that's weird. That what does that have to do with any? By the way, <laughs> side note, I don't remember which one of you said it, but I feel like one of you said to me off recording once that Jason Mantzoukas is like the new not problematic <laughs> T.J. Miller. Yeah, that, that wasn't me, but that works. 
I, I think I heard it or someone make the comment, but it's it definitely feels like between some of his roles, including uh, like what I was the good now. place. Uh, it, oh. Well, good place, but the uh, the hero he plays in Invincible. Yes, yep. it, it, it feels like he's filling a role very similar. Yep. No, that, I think other people have made that joke. It's like, oh, this is our new T.J. Miller. Cool. <laughs> All right. So we spent a lot of time. I, I mean, I could talk about it close enough more, but I feel like we spent a lot of time talking about adult animation that is surreal that works. But surrealism isn't the only thing I think that it can accomplish well. So why don't we take a moment to talk about a show that is that, that maybe it has some surrealism in it, but is not like the main focus again, I literally just came up with this because Woonvog brought it up on the screen over here, <laughs> but uh, I'm a fan. And I know he's a fan and I'm betting Ulrich is a fan of the venture brothers. I've watched a little bit of it, but I never got past the first season. Oh, baby. There's <laughs> so much uh, great about it. I'd say like the first season of the show is uh, it, it is straight parody. Like it is just like, Oh, this is, like, what if uh, Johnny Quest grew up to be a jaded adult? Is literally what season one is. But I know yeah. that the I've watched up through season three, and Venture Brothers starts doing the. I feel like there's another show that's a good example. Almost kind of like Futurama, which is also worth talking about in this discussion, but we'll get to that <laughs> later. In that it starts off as something that's basic, and then starts kind of expanding in every direction. Well, I kind of call it the Adventure Time setup, where it it. And it definitely didn't start there, but I feel uh, it popularized it. Mm-hmm. Where the show starts off with a uh, more of a broad scope, but is slowly focused in on, oh hey, these characters are actually insanely deep, and this world has so much to uh, to explore. Um, and Venture Brothers really kicks in with that. And I, again, not surprising, uh, Lee, as we've been talking about them in depth, but there's uh, but spoilers for the show if you haven't yeah, seen anything. Of course. Um, you know, the first season is, you know, it's the children of... Uh, Dr. Who, Venture. Yeah, Dr. Venture, who was effectively a Johnny Quest-type kid when he, was a, when he was young, and now he's grown up to be a super scientist who has a lot of mental hang-ups because of the danger he was put in as a child. He's got a big chip on his shoulder because <laughs> his dad, yeah. Um, along with, I think, probably one of the best characters uh, Patrick Warburton has ever voiced, <laughs> Brock Sampson. Um, you know, I love Patrick Warburton, but I'm going to say not one of probably the best. <laughs> like, don't get me wrong, I love him like playing the tick, but that was him playing it in person. And I love Kronk, but <laughs> but Brock Sampson is like the whole package. <laughs> yeah, it, it's basically he's playing the super the super spy over the top machismo buff badass. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of tropes and archetypes but, wrapped in one. But he's particularly like the '80s American yes. badass, to be specific. Definitely, yeah. Like he drives muscle cars, and in my favorite moment ever, he has to retake his uh, license to kill test. <laughs> and at the end, the the guy who gives him his evaluation says something along the lines of, "All right, Mr. Sampson, in the shooting con or in the shooting test, you refused to use a gun. On the driving test, you wrecked every car except your own." And on the written test, you just drew a picture of Icarus from the cover of Led Zeppelin 4. And Brock just goes, what, you don't like Zepp? And I, I was sold on him from that forever <laughs> after that point. So. <laughs> uh, but again, the show starts delving down into like this, this weird bureaucratic uh, hierarchy between like super scientists and heroes and then the villains and antagonists that go against them uh, because there's... The OSI, which is effectively uh, like the GI Joe equivalent, mm-hmm. that uh, that protects uh, protagonists, and then there's the Guild of Calamitous Intent, which is effectively a union for uh, for villains. Well, what's funny about what you're talking <laughs> about? One of the things that's great about Venture Brothers as a as a show, period, is that it's doing the how do I put this? It's almost doing like the John Wick thing where it's just like, this is a, a world built up over time to encompass a lot of crazy stuff. And, mm-hmm. but it also does a thing where it like, it makes a lot of characters three dimensional that wouldn't be in other shows. Cause again, it starts off as a parody, yes. but 
the the best example is the two monarch henchmen, right? Where like they're literally yes. henchmen, and then the show just makes them main characters who have long form arcs and personalities and things to say about the greater goings ons and yeah. And again, that's a big thing that you know, season one you start with it's basically this jaded super scientist uh, dealing with his main rival uh, called the monarch, who's just a man in a butterfly outfit who for some reason has a vendetta against Dr. Venture, but it we is, never find out. It right? is never explained why yeah, he just, he just uh, hates Dr. Venture. It's only in the last few seasons that it's been touching on their backstory, mm-hmm. but also you know, he has a girlfriend, Dr. Girlfriend who is <laughs> very attractive, but um, has a voice that isn't <laughs> much like, much like some of the characters in uh, Bob's burgers. Uh, some of the females are voiced by ma- uh, by uh, male actors, and with Doctor Girlfriend, they give a very intentionally gruff, deep voice, which is it is a joke in its own right. <laughs> anyway, if you're listening to this and you don't know Venture Brothers, but the idea of like an animated parody of Johnny Quest that becomes its own like epic show in its own right, that's that's kind of what's going on here. But what's funny about that, like what. What about it being an animation really supports it? And I think that what's what helps in this regard is scope. Because mm-hmm. Venture Brothers goes to places that if it tried to do this as a show, you'd have to do it kind of ah, – honestly, I hate shitting on the CW Arrowverse because I actually think the Arrowverse is really well done. But you'd have to do it like like that. It would be kind of cheap. But mm-hmm. but it also wouldn't have the same connecting connective tissue because Venture Brothers is a lot of times skewering – or homaging cartoons, particularly those from the 60s. So yes. by being a cartoon, it gets to make that connection a lot more explicit. Yeah, I'd say scope and detail, uh, along with like spe- what it's specifically satirizing. There's even a no, Doctor Strange character. <laughs> yes. No, I agree. It's 100% built around that Hanna-Barbera action. I haven't seen a lot of it, but I can clearly recognize it. It's referencing all those big Hanna-Barbera action movies, The Thunder of the Barbarian, the Johnny Quest. I feel like there's more in there. Uh, Fantastic Four are referenced. In, I mean, there's a group oh, that God, is literally, yes. literally, uh, what if the Fantastic Four, but horrible. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't remember what their names are. But... Uh, but the Human Torch is literally on fire and in pain constantly, so he has to be kept sedated. The the Thing equivalent is like horribly mutated. Well, right? he's, what it is is, the Mr. Fantastic equivalent, voiced by Stephen Colbert, mm-hmm. uh, is the only one that's that's not changed. Uh, it's he still has stretching powers, but it really doubles down on him being an uh, an asshole. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Susan Storm equivalent, uh, only her skin turns invisible, so all her muscles <laughs> and stuff are still visible. Uh, her brother, who is the Human Torch, his uh, his body oxidizes in air or combusts, mm-hmm. uh, and her mentally challenged cousin has become a walking callus. His skin is about three to four inches thick. Venture Brothers loves to take characters that are conventionally attractive and force <laughs> and, and try it. to and, and try to force you to feel <laughs> conflicted about being attracted to them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I will give at least a warning there are a there are jokes from earlier seasons that really shouldn't have flown then and aren't okay now which happens just a warning for anyone going into if you're watching anything from the last 10 years good god the amount of learning and recognizing oh that's shitty i shouldn't do that we have undergone as a culture is baffling which is why there's, you know, there's a fine line there where it's it's important to recognize those kind of things and also important not to fully condemn based on – it depends on intent, right? Because there are – if we just condemned everything like that, we'd basically condemn most stuff that is – And there would be a ruling every 10 years like, all right, guys, we were shit. Let's not talk about that. Like, no, no. I think you got to go, we were shit. That sucks. But we're better now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I make the statement, the 90s needs to issue a continuous daily apology to the <laughs> trans community. Just like, I'm sorry. Like, I, I as a decade, I, I am deeply, deeply, deeply sorry. Like, I suck. <laughs> 2000s, too, but 2000s has got a whole 
other group people to apologize to as well. Oh yeah. Uh, if I was make, uh, if I could make a quick jump to uh, just from superhero thing to superhero thing, we uh, we mentioned it a little earlier, but Invincible. Yeah. Fuck that Invinci- was good. Invincible is interesting though because because it's adapted from source material that is itself uh, aimed at an adult audience because as certain people that we follow you know have iterated a time and time again you know comic books are made for children like originally that's mm-hmm. not uh, that's not saying they're bad or anything it's just a statement of fact but invincible was not made for children invincible was made obviously for teens and adults and then adapting it just was a you know an honest adaptation and in that case i don't know that one's a little hard only because i feel like I said this before, Invincible is doing the same stuff that The Boys is doing better, much better, but it's still mm-hmm. doing the same things. So I'm not sure if Invincible... Uh, I will argue that it it belongs here because apparently someone wants to double dip and they're developing a live action movie version. I mean, they should. I don't think they should, but that's a topic for another time. <laughs> I think that... Here's the thing. I, when, when it here's comes my to, arguments. Oh, okay. You go ahead and make yours first. A lot of Invincible's initial gut punch that first episode works is because it's animated and it feels like, oh, this is like every other animated superhero show that we kind of grew up on in the 90s, the X-Men, the Spider-Man. Actually, have they ever stopped making animated superhero shows? I don't watch them a lot as much anymore um, because my daughter isn't old enough yet. There are still a handful of, like, really standout ones. I mean, Young Justice is still pretty recent. So, okay. so they, they're still making – so it's, I mean, like, okay, this is just a cool animated superhero show, yada, yada, yada. And it's very clean. It's very bloodless until it's not. And yeah, then it's all of a sudden – and I think the animation lulls you into a sense of almost security that you're not going to get, like, unless you shot this, like – a sitcom with bright colors and everything. You no, no, you're overlooking. You're overlooking the obvious answer to what you're talking about, which is make the first half hour look, sound, feel, and treat like a Marvel movie. You have you have an audience that is completely conditioned to how that is, and that's how you make the same effect. Especially people who aren't currently aw- who aren't already aware of what Invincible is. That's true, but then you'd have to flip your cinematography for the second half and going forward. Invincible never stops being that bright, colorful superhero cartoon. The violence, again, I like juxtapositions against that bright colorfulness. Like, he's bright neon blue and yellow. And when he's splattered with blood, it really feels like, oh, this is like watching Spider-Man. But every time he gets punched, teeth fly out. Yeah, I still feel like you can... Oh, sorry. Uh, I still feel like you can totally get away with that by shooting the whole thing like a Marvel movie, but having it have the same effect... Of uh of things like I mean we just went and saw the Suicide Squad and that Ooh. was I did not expect the level of gore in that I mean it's not the same thing necessarily but I still wasn't expecting Pete Davidson's face to visibly get shot off you you know you're not wrong I hadn't considered that but Suicide <laughs> Squad does kind of work in its own but it's almost a cartoon which it yeah but I feel like you could do I'm argument. saying that you could do the same kind of thing with Invincible I'm not I mean, with James Gunn, I feel like James Gunn's great for everything at this point, but... Yep. No, anyway, my no, your argument actually that actually backs it up, because Suicide Squad, it does kind of feel like a superhero cartoon, but with violence on top of it, and it wouldn't take much to tweak it to get Invincible in live action. Yeah, so my, my point of that whole argument is that I love Invincible, I do, I just don't think Invincible is required to be animation, and one thing is there's an argument to be made about the medium in which you tell a story, what is the thing that you're getting out of said medium and the thing you get out of live action particularly is tangibility and so bringing a version of the invincible story to a medium that feels tangible to make it so that you have an audience that feels like omni man could really come out of the sky and kill you is that's why i'm saying it's similar to what's going on in the boys better but similar to what's going on there with homelander so okay so i will throw out one that i believe is the pinnacle for this argument that it really it utilizes it checks all the boxes and that is gendry tartakovsky's primal Ooh, i haven't had a chance to watch that yet but i've been hearing uh, good things 
it's here's a thing work about, of here's art. Thing about Tartakovsky in general. Tartakovsky is a damn genius, but he's yes. a genius at both working within constraints and without constraints. I feel like comparing the first four seasons of Samurai Jack to the fifth season shows, and yes, I know the very ending of Samurai Jack has some narrative problems, but as a whole, it still works completely well. And seeing what he did in the last season when he wasn't constrained versus the first four where he was is fascinating. And then Primal, which is him completely unconstrained, because that's literally, hey, I made the, what, the Hotel Transylvania movies? That was him, right? Yep, uh, that, that's him. Yeah, that's it. I made the Hotel Transylvania movies so I could fund this project. Still making. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and then, all right, Gen- all right, Gendy, what did you have for us? And I admit, I only watched the first episode because I feel like Primal might be just not in my personal wheelhouse. But the fact that it straight up has... T-Rex is eating children on screen. <laughs> Oof. It's visceral. <laughs> okay, so I, I can I can handle this one then, because I've watched this all. I love this. It is, it literally, every panel is a work of art. Like, the colors, the design, everything. The best part is there's no dialogue. Everything is conveyed through body language through grunts through voice basic voice acting cues and through tone so it's really a piece of art and the best thing is i may catch flack for this but i watched this with my daughter and she well, loved again, it well okay so real quick that's tartakovsky to a t though he was always big on silence that was why samurai jack was such a bolt out of the blue when it first landed like the fact that oh, what yeah. the pilot episode is four fifths non-verbal yeah like Tartakovsky uses silence better than anybody. <laughs> yes. However many ep- uh, other episodes he did the same way. Exactly. Literally the only creator in media I can think of that used silence the same way is Vince Gilligan, which if you don't know that name, that's the guy behind Breaking Bad. But they both illustrate the power of silence. So. Hmm. But watching this with my daughter, she immediately grasped on and followed what was going on. In the first episode, like, I still find her, she was more upset about the dinosaurs dying than the cave people. I like, didn't care about the cave people. She was pissed when the dinosaurs died. So she understood, like, yeah. <laughs> she understood why Fang was upset. And when Fang and Spear, our two main characters, are fighting, she's like, oh, you know, Spear's angry at Fang because he keeps eating all this stuff and he's being a jerk. And, you know, oh, well, Fang's angry at Spear. You know, oh, listen, she was following it. She was totally cued in and could follow the plots because... You know, again, it's this very basic story thing, but the whole thing is a treatise on grief and overcoming grief and getting past that, which to me, this is adult storytelling that you're not really getting out. You're not getting in adult animation as much. Well, plus, that's another example of you could theoretically do uh, something like Primal in live action, but the budget you would need for it is astronomical because you would need yeah. you know the dinosaurs and but also there's a thing that tartakovsky does specifically that a lot of the best uh animating artists will do which is primal is itself its art direction is in wholly unique to it in that it's not it's a story that was made to be animated to begin with it's not like a story that you make and then you're like all right now how do we tell this like Tartakovsky back in Samurai Jack, he's the same thing. Like he's making paintings and that he mm-hmm. is he's animating them. And the best animated shows will do that where the animation is, if not first, it is in the center of like the reason why this thing exists. Yeah. And this whole argument has or discussion rather has been how do these shows benefit from being animated? And I think a big part of why Primal works and why it gets to be almost silent is because it's so beautiful to look at. Everything, the character designs, the backgrounds, everything about it is so beautiful that live action, I feel you would have a bit of trouble doing the same thing. Like, listen, I've been staring at Brad Pitt's face for like the last 30 minutes. Okay, I need something more. But with this, the little shifts in the how they draw faces you know, kind of tells you everything you need to know that I don't think you can get with people. Plus the weird bug nut stuff that they do that you're kind of going, what is this world? What is going on? I mean, this episode had dinosaurs. This episode had mammoths. This episode had bat creatures and monkeys. And what? 
I feel like we've touched on one of the big things that differentiates good adult animation from bad adult animation, at least in our conversations, is that bad adult animation basically doesn't treat the animation like it matters. Like, the animation is there, but it's, like we've said, it's usually just juvenile jokes and, like, dialogue kind of things, whereas the best... Ugly character design. Yeah, but, like, the best... I can draw ugly people, and that's... And well, I, part of the joke. I would acknowledge there are some shows that pull that off, actually, but that's besides the <laughs> point. The, the point is that the, the good adult animation tends to be that there is a reason why this story is being told in animated form. And just telling, you know, dirty jokes is not what we're here for. You could do that in any medium. We're telling a story that benefits from the medium of animation itself. Like to use an example of a show that I don't actually particularly like but I think actually does this while also being crude and crass is Aqua Teen Hunger Force. I'm not a fan and I wouldn't blame anyone else for not being a fan, but that's a show that relies on crude humor, but also relies on absolute bonkers things it can do specifically with animation. So I think that's, you need, you need that to even like to justify your existence. Does that make sense? I can understand that. No, I'll make an argument in a similar vein. I talked about four is a moral oral. Oh God, moral yeah. moral has so so many great layers to it though. Yep, and I, a lot I never of that, watched that. So oh, <laughs> moral oral is good. I yeah. I really recommend, especially when you dig. Like I didn't. Here's a fun fact for community fans. This was written, directed, and created by Starburns. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, this was his pet project, and kind of this was his way of getting his own personal grief and trauma off his chest. Well, hold which, on. Would you take that? So, Wundvog, you sound like you've got something to say about it. I want to hear it. Well, I was just going to go into a bit of the background for uh, for any younger audience or people who missed it who don't know what Moral Oral is. It's a little bit of an older show compared uh, to that. It was a claymation show about a a young religious boy named Oral who's growing up in a incredibly repressed, tight-knit, hyper-religious community uh, with, like, a father who is... A father who is clearly... You okay, Oric? Yeah. Okay, continue. Uh, uh, kept having some beeps over here. Uh, but, like, the father who's, like, a clear alcoholic, uh, huge problems in the family life, but he's still too young to see what those problems are. Uh, but in turn, the whole show is a is just a black comedy take on an old, again, claymation series that touted these like religious right wing values. Hmm. Of, it yes, was uh, Veggie Tales before Veggie Tales. Yes, but it was it was even more ham fisted. Yes. Davy and Goliath, if anyone's interested. That's it. Yeah, and it was just a just a live action or not live action, a claymation series that was meant to uh, like just in uh, institute uh, good Christian morals. Yeah, good Christian morals. Yeah, I I will admit the reason why I never watched Moral Oral is because I saw the trailers on Adult Swim, and I can't put this delicately. It looked to me in the trailers like it was a show about a boy in a sexually abusive house, and I was like, I don't want to see that. So. There, it's it's layered in there. This, and again, this is one of those ones. It draws you in with this. Hey, that looks like that thing I had to watch that one time at Sunday school. And there's even some kind of jokes about written in there. Like they go to the Believe It or Else Museum, mm. which is a fun take on the whole creationist museums. But there's that. But there's also a lot of, you know, darker shit. Like, Moral's dad is definitely abusing him. Definitely in a sexual rela- a homosexual relationship with his gym teacher. His gym teacher may or may not be a pedophile. There's some dark shit buried just under the surface. But there's also some really heartfelt good stuff in there. Yeah, and it's like, again, just small touches uh, talking or touching on the warnings of like just because you believe this thing makes you a good person and that's not true uh, morality is uh, is where or is all in your actions not your beliefs 
Yeah, and I think my favorite bit is the show at the very end, its takeaway is just because you had a toxic, terrible environment growing up, that doesn't mean you can't be a good person in your adult life. Like the whole moral of the story is just because something is bad doesn't mean something good can't come of it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I have nothing to add to that, but it just sounds yeah. – it still sounds like something that is my probably a little bit outside my uh... – it's, it's 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 dark as fuck, and I don't know if no offense to you, that's something you want to engage with. See, I like <laughs> I do like really dark stuff. I just like dark stuff in certain capacities, if that makes any sense. Like, and there are certain things that I just don't really engage with if I don't have to. <laughs> you know, like I'm not yeah. a fan of say sexual abuse, but at the mm-hmm. same time. I'm a big fan of Berserk, and Berserk uses sexual abuse several times throughout its story to illustrate how terrible and horrible the world is. So it's not like it can't be done, but it's not something that I I tend to gravitate towards, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's shift to something kind of fun. Um, going back to animation, Love, Death, and Robots. I didn't watch that. I remember you having thoughts on it, and I remember oh. seeing the trailer for it, but that's all. I, I love that first season i'm i have mixed thoughts on the second season so i won't really talk to that but for those of you who don't know love death and robots is a sci-fi big quotation marks around sci-fi because they just kind of cram everything under that trope short film anthology series where every episode is a different art style and to me that feels like the perfect example of this they're all there's lots of violence lots of duty let's swing but Again, they're almost all very different, very interesting art styles that fits the story they're trying to tell. And some of the best ones are some of the weirdest ones that use the really most out there animation. And you kind of get you get all these weird ones. You've got kind of comedy, which is these robots that are touring the burned out remains of the world and kind of commenting on, oh, I wonder what this was. And I wonder what this was and kind of joking about that as a comedy. There's other ones which are incredibly dark, which one would be uh, a crew that gets lost at the end of time and they're trapped and they're being fed on by this giant creature, alien creature that keeps them in a blissful state so they don't realize where they are. Uh, There's one that would be actually a great show about the industrialization of Japan and the loss of tradition and almost Miyazaki-esque in some of its tones that's done in a kind of a really almost anime Miyazaki style art. Is that the one with the weird white box creature? It's the only thing I remember. Yes. The that one's very much, it's about the old, the, there's a, lots of commentary on imperialism, industrialization, losing touch with your culture, having to combine the two. And the little bit I'll say about season two is season two was much shorter. All, a lot of the animation was the same. Mm. Like it was, they have a couple of, like they kind of, Ever they sprinkle in a couple really almost uncanny valley, but also really good stories where it was almost uh I'm trying to think what the word is here. Oh realistic. Mm, okay. They were really good, but you kinda had to sprinkle them in other because the strength of the show was all these different animation styles and different stories. But it's like, hey, it looks like people, but they're animated. Hey, it looks like people, but they're animated. Hey, it looks like people, but they're animated. Okay, you know I'm getting the point. But one really good one was about this woman whose robot tries to kill her, mm-hmm. which is a housing one, and everyone has it's in a retirement community and it's all automated, and it's kind of a commentary on automation in Amazon because the customer service is terrible. And it's like, well, you did piss off the robot, so I don't know what you expect <laughs> us to do about it. It's it's very black mirrorish almost. And that's what I mean, is it's using animation, it's using all these different animations to tell different types of stories, which that makes sense. Our whole argument here is how is the animation being used? You know, that's why that question, not to cut off the love, death, and robots conversation, but I have nothing to add to it. <laughs> but that question leads me to discuss what I consider to be an elephant in the room when it comes to this conversation. A show that I think does qualify as good adult animation, even if its fan base and its later seasons are problematic for a number of reasons, which is Rick and Morty. So I can't imagine anyone listening to this not at least knowing what Rick and Morty is, but Rick and Morty was... bastards if you do. Yeah. Rick and Morty is a show made by Dan Harmon and Justin Roiland. Dan Harmon's the guy behind Community and a a bunch of other things, actually. But its basic idea is 
what if the doctor from Doctor Who was a drunk misanthrope? <laughs> There's also ties into obviously it's a big reference to Back to the Future with a old, you know, time traveling dude and his young ward, in this case his grandson. But the reason why the show functions well on a, its own merits, especially in the first two seasons, is because it uses that basic premise to explore the psychology of a essentially omnipotent human. Like Rick is so insanely intelligent in this show that nothing is a challenge to him. So he becomes a, well, a nihilist to the point where literally, I think it's episode seven where they illustrate that, hey, we just destroyed this entire reality. We're not gonna fix it, fuck it. We're just gonna go find another reality to live in instead. So on top of other things too, it's, uh, it's not just nothing challenges him. He can't relate to anything anymore. Exactly. And then even when the show starts becoming – losing track of that because Dan Harmon himself resists the very idea of predictability, of falling into cliches. So yeah. once once Rick and Morty started to align with this kind of idea of there's a greater lore and all this happening by the end of season three, he kind of shifted away from it. And by his own admission, Rick and Morty instead has become a vessel – for the writers and animators to experiment with ideas. So he says that he'll never stop as long as the animators and the writers want to keep going because it's basically a writer and animator's dream. Just, hey, you have an idea? Throw it on the canvas. And in that regard, it's both a great animation and a bad one because it kind of loses the ability in the later seasons to, for the audience to relate to it, at least in my estimations anyway. Yeah. Personally, like it, there is kind of an issue between wanting to continue the lore as it is, but also keep the show going as the sequential, uh, you know, whatever whatever random adventure of the week is happening is ha- going to happen. Uh, and tr- they they try to do both to varying degrees of success. But I personally think it does kind of hurt the series as a whole. I agree. That's what I'm saying is that I think the later seasons get problematic. And also, again – Even though the ep- some of the episodes that come out are still fantastic. Yeah, some certainly are. <laughs> and again, real quick sidebar, it has one of the worst fan bases, which is why I, I don't like bringing it up necessarily. But it's also like the most successful adult animation in a long time. Yeah. So we kind of have to mention it just because. To be fair though, the worst fans are the worst for the same reasons that like – Fight Club fans, a lot of them tend to be bad yeah. because they're looking at Rick, a character that Dan Harmon has basically stated, this is the worst aspects of me amplified up to a super-powered character, essentially. <laughs> and then, of course, the worst kind of fans see that and want to be Rick <laughs> without understanding that the very creator of the show himself despises Rick. And that's the point of why Rick is miserable all the time. <laughs> so. uh, and if uh, do you have anything else to add to that one, uh, Ulrich? Ulrich? I tried and failed on several occasions to get into Rick and Morty for a very specific reason of I am attracted to the intelligence of the writing that is at play. Like, I recognize that, but I can't get past the shield, I'll call it, of crass, dumb humor that's just kind of wrapped around everything else. Like, I don't need this. this Which is... It's this funny is too because, juvenile for me. Well, it's funny because in that instance, it's it feels very deliberate. Like Dan Harmon is specifically being like, hey, you know these kind of firebrand, super intelligent kind of characters that you're into? Well, I'm going to make one of those. I'm also going to wrap him in shit jokes just to basically show how much I detest these but kind of I'd characters. argue, like my, my friends, the show is shit jokes top to bottom with a golden core of really smart, really well-written stuff. And it's asking you, like, hey, get past the dumb jokes. There's good stuff in here. And I'm like, I I, I can't. I got I, I got so much other shit I can watch. But I would disagree that's what it's asking you to do. I, I feel like the being shit-covered gold is kind of the point. Like, that is, again, because what Harmon thinks about what's going on there, um, I think <laughs> that that's kind of the what he's trying to accomplish. It's not get past it. It's recognize that this is what I'm doing. It's let's enjoy both of these things together. Yeah, exactly. I'd say it's more what's going on there. So, but anyway, like I said, I'm not, I used to be a big fan of Rick and Morty. I'm not so much anymore. (laughs) 
So, but I thought it was important to mention for this conversation. Yeah. Uh, but if I could also give, uh, just kind of throw out a couple of uh, semi-blind suggestions for the uh, for it, uh, just because it's things I've either seen only a little of or haven't seen at all, uh, but have heard but have heard positive things from other people. Okay. Uh, one being Bob's Burgers, which I personally call the funniest show I don't watch, and. <laughs> And I will say that because Bob's Burgers was made by – I don't know how much of the same team, but I know it's got at least a few people who were behind home movies. <laughs> and I fucking love home movies. Home movies is like my favorite cult show. Yeah. Uh, and I've watched a couple seasons of Bob's Burgers, and it is – I don't think it's quite as funny as home movies, which I feel like some a lot of the fans will disagree with me on. But I do think Bob's Burgers is very good. So Yeah, because like, I can probably count the individual episodes I've seen on both hands. But everyone I've seen, I'm like, this is hilarious, and I enjoy every minute of it. Well, also, I know this is a cheat, but if Christian Shaw is in it, it's probably going to be gold. Like, Christian Shaw just is in it. Sagathor likes Bob's Burgers. I could never get into it for a lot of reasons. Uh, And the other one would be... uh, if if, If you either liked... Rick and Morty, or if you couldn't get into it, or if you pr- would rather it be a bit more on the lighthearted side, I have heard really good things about Polar Opposites. That's actually pretty good. I've watched a couple episodes of that. I won't commit one way or the other to it, but it wasn't. It was enjoyable. Yeah, because from what I've heard is if Rick and Morty is uh, Dan Harmon's brainchild. Polar Opposites is Justin Roiland's. Isn't that Solar Opposites? Solar Opposites, that's it. Okay, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was was about to say, I think I'm getting the name wrong. Yeah, I've never seen the trailer for that. Solar Opposites. Yeah, I I didn't watch it because I was already burnt out on Rick and Morty, but if you, all right. I've heard, like, because, just because it's from, uh, it's more from Roiland's It's probably less less self-hating it. Yeah, it's a bit more, uh, it's a bit more positive. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'll throw out. I'm going to group these three together because I don't know if they necessarily fit in this conversation. And that is Castlevania, Blood of Zeus, and He-Man, Masters of the Universe, Revelation, all being from that same studio. I put a question mark around this because Netflix classifies it as Netflix anime, and I don't know if it's a Western studio or not. Here's what I'd say. The He-Man, I think, gets away with it. I don't know about Blood of Zeus. I can't say. But I wouldn't classify Castlevania as this conversation because Castlevania, I, I consider straight up anime. And anime is a completely different discussion of what we're talking yeah. about. Because so that's anime, why I'm putting these ones in quotation marks because I don't think they fit. And if we, we'd have to have a discussion, a long off-the-air discussion of can we put this in this category or this conversation? Because I don't know if the studio is... I feel like the studio is based in Poland, Eastern Europe. I could be pulling that out of my ass. But it also could be Castlevania like, bleeding into my brain. Yeah, but real quick to say that once you bring anime into the question, things change significantly because anime in general is aimed at teenagers, not adults or kids. And the way their culture exists is that things are treated differently. So you get anime that is quote unquote aimed at the same audience that are vastly, vastly different levels of mature. I mean, you look at something like Panty and Stocking and Garter Belt, which I love, but is <laughs> just sex and scat jokes, essentially, versus Cowboy Bebop, which is literally taking a Western and looking at the idea of midlife crises and basically be, what is the nature of legacies. And it's basically a Sergio Leone show, <laughs> but without Sergio Leone. Like, And those are technically aimed at the same audience, but might as well be different genres because anime is not a genre, it's a style. So, yeah, I feel like anime does not is not part of this discussion. That's a separate discussion. <laughs> well, again, we clarify in the West because when we brought this up previously, everyone started shouting us about anime like, guys, read the title. In the West. Because not touching about anime the- are not wrong. There is a lot of great, quote-unquote, adult animation that is anime but that is they have a, a separate whole conversation different, it's a whole other thing that i am largely unqualified to talk about because i've seen maybe like five anime 
that I can talk about with confidence. Well, then let me say, <laughs> me and Woundvog are both qualified to talk about that, and I assume, Woundvog, you agree that it's a different conversation. Uh, yeah, it, at, at the very least, it makes the conversation a lot more broad. Uh, uh, I will give the quick addendum that, uh, in, including the Castlevania and Blood of Zeus, the major studios that worked behind them, while there were uh, where there were out of uh, out of state studios, most of them were actually uh, based in states. It's just much more heavily based off of anime uh, design. Then we get into the Avatar: The Last Airbender debate, and again, this well, is a you know what? I'm not going to have an argument right now, but I'm going to take. I'm going to put. I'm pretty sure I said this before. I'm putting my foot in the sand. Anime does not just mean animation coming out of Japan, because yes. if you if you define it that way, you are crippling language, and it doesn't convey properly. Avatar: Last Airbender, Voltron, Castlevania, SpongeBob. Not it's anime. Because <laughs> anime means animation. No, here's what I'm gonna say. Anime, <laughs> anime is an artistic movement. Fair enough. And by by that. Avatar, Castlevania, those are anime. Voltron is anime. SpongeBob is not anime, even if. <laughs> anyway. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what. If you want us to have that conversation about is it anime, what is anime, yada yada, leave us a comment, and I will totally ignore it because I'm not having that conversation because that sounds boring and pedantic as fuck. Does it weep? All right. <laughs> Anyway, we've been talking for about an hour, and I think we've kind of devolved into just saying shows we like. Which is- <laughs> Just not really the conversation anymore. I feel like we hit the peak of the conversation at like minute forty. Yeah. So, but I mean, I think if if you take anything from the ramblings of this episode, it's variety is always good. Like even if it even if it makes even if it ends up making a lot more like varied quality shows, having a range is uh, is positive because. Uh, Again, when you have shows all trying to vie to do the exact same thing but better than each other, that does create stagnation. Uh, my concluding thought will be that animation for adults, it, it follows the same principle, I think, of animation aimed at kids, which is you make a good story first. And whether that story needs as part of it stuff that makes it an adult or child – is secondary and you figure that out later like if you focus on writing a good story to begin with then you can either make it adult or quote-unquote kid friendly but then your tools for how to convey your story change and as long as your primary focus is making a good story first and making use of animation as a medium i think you won't go wrong personally I'll, I'll say this. Uh, the big inspiration for doing this follow-up episode was I kind of felt bad about all the negativity that came out of the previous episode where we talked about animation, adult animation in the West, and just kind of ragging on a lot of shows that did deserve ragging. But I, I don't want to do that much negativity and then kind of think like, well, what about this show? What about this show? Like, we're, we're kind of almost... I don't want to say it, jinx it, a renaissance for adult animation. We're getting away from it just being copies of The Simpsons and into how do I use this medium to its fullest? I do feel like, though, you just mentioned the, I don't know what the right metaphor is, but we didn't talk about The Simpsons, and The Simpsons is kind of both not relevant and also the most relevant thing to this conversation. I don't even know how to (laughs) grapple the Simpsons is no, in There's to this. a reason I didn't bring up The Simpsons or Futurama or any of Matt Groening's creations. Especially The Simpsons, which okay. is an institution. <laughs> That's a whole other episode we will get into at some point. Okay. Well, anyway, that means we all have had our our concluding com uh, our concluding points, which means that it's at this point that we get the special soapbox out and we allow our guest Runvog to stand on the soapbox and and. Plug whatever you want to plug. Phrasing. Exactly. <laughs> oh, what have I been enjoying lately? Just got to get a quick thought on that. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you look into any of them, look up the uh, Bobaverse trilogy of books. <laughs> Bobaverse? Yes. Uh, I, think I've ta- I think I've brought them up We've before. We've talked about the Bobaverse because I have it on my Amazon to read list. Wonderful. I vaguely <laughs> remember hearing about it, but I don't remember the details. Uh, it is a... Uh, the first book is called We Are Legion, We Are Bob. Oh, now I remember. Okay, <laughs> yes. Uh, based off of 
this uh, this engineering nerd from you know about our time late to uh, late 2010s uh, has his consciousness duplicated uh, in the future and is now a uh, an AI program that runs a self-replicating uh, space traveling probe that is that's main job is to search across the stars for inhabitable inhabitable planets for humanity see the self-replicating AI just makes me think Borg and now I'm terrified I'm pretty sure I said that last time <laughs> yeah but it's uh instead of a emotionless drone it's a engineering nerd yeah which I feel you'll relate to a lot probably it gives me just the description gives me hitchhiker's <laughs> guide vibes very much and it's it is a wonderful series. It's it's very funny, but it's also very interesting in the sci-fi as it goes through it. Uh, a lot of heart and a lot of a lot of interesting ideas on what it means to to be human and but to also be transhuman. Mm. All right, all right, okay. Well then, uh, I'm gonna thank you like probably three more times, but thanks for coming and talking with us. Ooh, definitely. And as this is a regular episode, we can do suggestions of the week, something I, I feel like I haven't done in a while. And because my suggestion is something that I've suggested before probably two or three times, I'm just going to get this out of the way. If you're listening to this and you still haven't watched the movie Dread from 2012, go do that. I just, I just rewatched it the other day. It's still awesome. And apparently they're going to make a television show called Mega City One. And there are rumors that Carl Urban might not be Dread, which would be a travesty. So go watch it, realize how awesome Carl Urban is as Dread, and then go tell the people making the show, keep Carl Urban as Dread. I don't think they can stop Carl Urban as Dread. I mean, it's kind of like Ryan Reynolds in Deadpool. He He's going to be it, whether you ask him to or not. I mean, the thing from what I've looked at, Carl Urban is such a nice guy that he said, like, I just want there to be more Dread stuff, even if I'm not it. So he's very relaxed and whatnot. He wants to be it, but he's also very chill about it. So that's why I'm saying we, the fans, need to be like, no, Carl, you're the only Dread and we all know it. So you need to do it. (laughs) Anyway, that's my suggestion. Go watch Dread. (laughs) Uh, My suggestion, this probably won't surprise anybody, but I have kept long kept a curious eye on historical miniature wargaming because, you know. I don't spend enough money on tiny plastic men. And uh, there's a great YouTube channel I want to shout out called Little Wars TV, which they have an amazing collection of videos about miniature historical wargaming. Then divided into subcategories. They have episodes talking about, hey, you're getting into it. Here's how to make terrain. Here's how to make a table. Here's how to great start. Here's how to paint. They have other ones like, hey, these are the rules we played this game with. Here's what we think about these rules, if you're interested in learning them. But their big ones are these big centerpiece battle episodes they do where they give you a little bit of history, they give you the game, and it's all in about 10, 15 minutes. Which, if you watch a lot of battle reports of any form, you uh, immediately appreciate how enjoyable that is that they cut out a lot of the meat to just go, all right, we're moving here, we're rolling here, this happened, this happened, this happened. Boy, doesn't this game look fun. The word you're looking for is digestible. Yes, that's a great one. And again, I like because you get a little outside of history. You get to look at, oh, well, that actually is that one I might be interested in or different scales. It's really a great all around resource if you are even mildly interested in historical wargaming. All right. Uh, Wundvog, do you have a suggestion of the week? Well, along with the books, uh, a fun little series I've been looking up on YouTube uh, on the College Humor website. It's called Don't Wait, Laugh. They're still around? Yeah, uh, kind of. They've changed uh, a lot, though. <laughs> it, it's, well, it's changed a lot because Facebook nearly killed them. Because I knew that. I thought they died. Well, it's because, uh, not to go too deep in this, but Facebook started lying about the number of views videos got on their platform so they could become a quote-unquote rival to YouTube mm. and told people, hey, look at how much views you're getting on our website. Come use our stuff. And some channels said, okay. But when they got there, the numbers dropped and then Facebook was like, okay, now pay us, and so we'll show your things to the people subscribed to you. If you don't, we won't show it to them. That's that's evil. Oh, it's awful. It destroyed 
it's kind of what destroyed some other video uh, sites and killed a lot of channels. What's with freaking video platforms being <laughs> evil? All right, uh, anyway. But uh, <laughs> I have an yeah. answer, but that's not for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, but College Humor is kind of going back into some stuff. But Don't Laugh News is uh, a group of their comedians are reading from a prompter that they don't know what it says until they read it, and the goal is to not laugh. And it, it is very funny. Usually what they end up saying is wild and bizarre. He's shown me a few. It's pretty good. <laughs> the, the, word, the, the, the funniest one for me was they had one where it started talking about this one character's sexual history, and he was <laughs> one of the people on the, the show, and he didn't know he was going to start talking about these stories of his. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's basically just embarrassing moments about, the, about this one guy. And that's the whole episode. It was really funny, though. Hmm. Anyway, so I believe that brings us to the end. And it's time to, first of all, again, thank you, Woonvog, for coming. Yes. And Ulrich, take us into an outro. All right. Thank you for listening. Be sure to like, share, subscribe, do all the things. Because, as Woonvog just mentioned, algorithms suck. They are out to destroy us all. And unless you actively promote things you love, we're all destined to die. And you can actively promote us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Pocket Cast, Spotify, or iHeartRadio. Whichever platform you would want us to be on that isn't in that list, tell us what it is. The more people yell at us, be like, come to Platform X, the more likely we are to actually devote the time to figure out how to get on Platform X. And also enjoy the Fireside Chat. Oh, yes, Fireside Alliance. We have to add that to the show notes. Anyways, as always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time, and as always, stay honorable.